Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. The Big Lead on The Shift. All right, children are streaming back into classrooms across the country. It's been basically since March for most anyway. So now worrying trends starting to pop up. I think it was expected, right? We always knew that as we got back to life, there was going to be more cases. Global's Eric Sorensen reports reopening schools will be a stern test of provincial monitoring and protocols to avert a second wave in the pandemic. It's a convergence public health officials and governments did not want to see. Just as schools are reopening, COVID-19 case numbers are rising. In Ontario, close to 400 new cases in the last two days. The province holding back on allowing larger public gatherings till at least October. And on this, the first day of school for many young Ontarians across the province, We need to do everything we can to limit the spread of COVID-19. While Ontario and Quebec see case numbers edge upwards, the numbers have risen even more quickly per capita in British Columbia and Alberta in recent weeks. At the other extreme is Atlantic Canada, where provinces often report no more than one case per day. But the test now will be whether schools across the country can reopen without triggering a second wave in the pandemic, especially as winter approaches and Canadians spend more time huddled indoors. Maybe that's the conversation. I haven't been able to put my finger on it why everybody's so pissed off. Everybody seems so pissed off about COVID this week. Uh, COVID cases are going up in certain areas around Canada. We're starting to see that consistently going up, going up in BC. Restrictions on the hospitality industry. BC saw 429 new cases over the last four days as active case numbers near 1,400. BC Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry on Tuesday ordered all nightclubs and banquet halls to close again. Here's more info specifically. Effective today, all nightclubs and all standalone banquet halls are ordered closed until further notice. In addition, liquor sales in all bars, pubs and restaurants must cease at 10 p.m. and these venues must close at 11 p.m. Now, that's not good news, is it? There must be some contact tracing that's seeing a trend there. There has to be. That's the part that I wish that the political people would share and just say, look, we've got the data that says we're seeing this out of the pubs, out of the clubs. Put your glow sticks away, my friend. You need to chill. Or maybe they're not seeing it. I don't know. I would like to hear the info. So COVID-19 cases in BC are on the rise. So bars must close by 10. Music or other background sounds, such as televisions, must be no louder than the value of volume of a normal conversation to prevent patrons from having to yell close to other people to be heard. The order went into effect immediately, although there is a grace period to work out the details. Uh, here's Jeff Gienard, uh, Executive Director at Alliance of Beverage Licensees, BC. We've been saying for a while that British Columbians weren't taking this seriously and not abiding by the rules. Government was going to crack down, and that's what happened today. And it's it's frustrating because um, not just that people are going to lose some some pleasant experiences out there, but uh, there's thousands of businesses that are going to get caught up in this and thousands of staff that are probably going to lose their jobs now. 
Yeah, so the challenge is even in this environment where people have been operating um, for a while with reduced capacity and social distancing, we have fully half of restaurants and bars and pubs out there are not making money or they're just barely, barely squeaking through with federal uh, wage supports and rent supports. Um, and the only reason we've been able to kind of make it this far is the, those last few hours of the night uh, are always the most profitable. Uh, that, at that point, you've made money throughout the day um, or had enough sales that you paid your rent. And that's those last few hours that we were finally trying to put some profit into the owner's pocket by taking that away now. Um, and not having to be able to sell alcohol past 10 p.m., uh, you're going to see some businesses that are just going to have to close because of it. And that's really, really sad. The other thing I'll say, too, is I am a little concerned. We're looking after the wrong portion of the problem here. Um, it's not like the virus is manufactured in the kitchen in a, at your favorite restaurant or something, and people bring it in with them sometimes. Um, that's why we have all these public health protocols. But I'm concerned this is going to force people underground. People are not going to stop hanging out past 10 p.m. They're just not going to do it in unmonitored spaces at home where no one's going to say, hey, I know you've had a bit to drink, but make sure you keep social distancing and don't have more than six people in your backyard, right? Uh, so that's that's concerning for me. And I think there might be some unintended consequences here. There, He's absolutely right and could not be more right in when he says that you know people are going to lose jobs and people are still going to go party. There's no denying that. This is a cause and effect scenario, right? Like this is dealing with... Uh, the effect, not the cause. The cause is, is that people aren't following the rules. And yes, maybe too many drinks means a little bit loose on the mask wearing or whatever. Now I have a bias in this. I'm going to be fully upfront and transparent with you. I own a business that is business to business and services hospitality. We build music for businesses. So I can tell you that there are an awful lot of businesses that are struggling to bring staff back or letting staff go that support those restaurants. We often only hear about the restaurants. But there are the food providers, right? There are the farmers that are the farm-to-table people. Even potato growers have been suffering because of the fact that no one's buying French fries in pubs, right? There's music providers like my company. There's all kinds of different, different people that, again, their ass is handed to them because of this behavior or these decisions. And, you know, people often are bringing this stuff in with them. It's not like it's getting manufactured inside the restaurants. I just got to say it. It's possible, just as that Jeff guy said, you're looking at it the wrong way. In Alberta, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, the province's chief medical officer, says she's concerned with the rising COVID-19 numbers across Alberta. There were 619 new cases over the long weekend, 1,692 active cases on Tuesday, the highest active infection count since May 9th. Julia Wong has more on that and other details from Tuesday's Alberta Health Update. Seven cases have been linked to the Fairmont Hotel McDonald here in Edmonton. All those cases are in staff. And Dr. Hinshaw said today that the source of this outbreak is unclear, whether it was something on site at the hotel or something that happened off site. But she does say that there is no risk to hotel guests. Now, switching gears a little bit to developing news out of British Columbia, that province is shutting down nightclubs, banquet halls, and bars and pubs now have to close earlier. Dr. Henry is saying that this needed to be done because these these places are just getting too risky and there were lots of new cases that were linked to these types of businesses. Also over in Ontario, that province is now pausing its reopening because of high case numbers. Now Alberta has seen high case numbers for quite some time now and I asked Dr. Hinshaw whether we need to bring restrictions back to our province. She said that they're looking at trends and patterns but that it's hard to formalize restrictions when it comes to things like community transmission as well as social gatherings. Instead, it seems like the onus is on Albertans. 
And those are difficult things to put in formal restrictions on, which is why if we want to have the, the biggest impact on our numbers, it has to be that collective effort with all of us digging in. Uh, and, and if we identify some of those trends that we may need to, for example, alter our guidance or take other specific action, we absolutely will do that. Yes, and she pinpointed two trends in particular. One is a higher percentage of new cases that are close contacts of known cases. She also said that they're seeing those with mild symptoms like sore throat, runny nose, nasal congestion, that those people are not staying home when their symptoms start. I know that it is inconvenient and possibly irritating to stay home with a mild illness, but it is absolutely critical that we support each other to do this. What is a mild, short-lived illness for one person can be a life-threatening risk for others. And Alberta Health Services is opening up a new assessment centre. This one is opening up in Hall A of the Expo Centre here in our city. Now, this will open tomorrow morning. The hours will be from 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. This site will be by appointment only. They are not accepting drop-ins. AHS says that opening up this assessment centre will allow them to do an additional 5,000 tests a day. And just for some context right now, the self-site assessment centre is capable of doing about 3,000 tests a day. 877-399-9898, your thoughts on any of this. A good text message comes in from Rick. He says, apparently COVID-19 can tell time and transmission increases after 11 p.m. It's a very good point, Rick. I don't know, man. Uh, so my story that I wanted to share was at the hockey rink, apparently at one of the hockey rinks in Airdrie, and this is just anecdote, by the way, storytelling that I heard, went in to go to my son's uh, hockey tryout tonight, which we are allowed to go in. One parent per kid, separated, da-da-da-da-da. Um, and uh, there was no one allowed in the rink today because apparently there was a game where there was too many people. Alberta Health Services found out and, and closed it, and they were going to work on a new plan. So it's just uh, it's remarkable how fast some of the decisions are being made. Uh, fortunately, though, there is, ironically, a pub attached, and you could go to the pub and walk, watch through the glass. So not quite sure how that one's uh, working out or playing out. All right, your calls, your text messages. This one comes in from around Edmonton, says, I saw masks are useless. I saw a guy walk out of MEC today and blow his nose into his mask. See, no, they're I don't not think useless. That, I mean, I think that, first of all, uh, you're proving the point that it's not useless. But the reality is, is that um, he, he just used it as a Kleenex. So that's not clearly not useless. I think that's quite, quite you know, ingenious. What? He could have blown the, a snot rocket. That's the point. This, this, like, he, this is, oh, like, oh. It's okay, dude. It's okay. Oh, Jesus. It's okay, man. <laughs> Just get it out. That's the point. It's a mask. It's meant to catch this stuff. He was doing the right thing. That's right. Like, and if he had to blow it, blow it, like, for real, like, we're talking, like, heavy load of your nose there. Sure, as long as he threw it out properly. I'm saying high five. Good job. But I like, think you did it right. Can we stop with the mask debate now, at least? Like, <laughs> yes, can we move I... on from that? Agreed. We're done yes. with masks. We did that for three months. Masks work. I am not calling Jason Kendrachuk again and being like, hey, can you take time out of your day to explain on national radio why you shouldn't sneeze on people again, please? Well, Just wear um... your mask. <laughs> and sneeze into your elbow <laughs> if you can't if you can't get it. And Jason's a very nice man. I enjoy talking to him regardless. I so. love Jason Kendrachuk, but I feel bad like that we 
you know, like have to ask him to keep explaining again and again that masks work. And everybody knows that. And I really appreciate the caller earlier who said that in Toronto, people are all wearing their masks. That really warms the cockles of my heart. <laughs> this is the Shift Daily Podcast. Um, how about some good news, uh, Matt, about a guy who's making music out of fruit? And I want to paint the picture of what this is for everybody. Um, he has taken an electrical currents. And if you don't know what MIDI is, it's like an on-off electrical thing that's uh, used often in music. It has many other different purposes too, but it's a, it's a way to control things, simple, on, off, on, off. And what this guy is, um, has done is he's taken the electrical currents from himself into fruit and turned it into a keyboard. So imagine little slices of watermelon that look like piano keys. And he touches them and plays music on them um, and this is what it sounds like. Whoa. Isn't that cool? Now, the beat is superimposed on that. I'm assuming, unless he's got a drum machine in their video, too. But he's got a little So, drum this machine, guy. Yeah. yeah, is it a drum machine? So, um, he, he's, he's connected it into GarageBand and everything else, and he's actually making his own music by touching the fruit. I just think that's pretty cool. <laughs> that, that's awesome. That's hey. pretty cool. <laughs> you know, that's better than some of the techno music from the 80s. <laughs> you know, some of those uh, guys and gals that like some of the buskers that get on the street corner and they do some of the loop recordings. That would be a piece that I would be interested in talking to uh, and maybe getting some examples on. Uh, because the so some of these artists they'll go and Matt, Matt I don't know if you've ever experienced this it's amazing they have a little loop machine and they basically add in all the layers of their song and they'll create their own beat and then they'll create a little bit of a bass line and then they'll add in some guitar little sample bits to repeat through the loop and then they start playing the songs and it's so fantastic that they do that and then they do it on a street corner I just love it it is fascinating technology um, in my uh, guitar as I play guitar and I have like a lot of what I would just call effects pedals you just, you know you hit it and it makes the guitar go really loud or you hit it and it makes the guitar sound kind of watery or you hit another one and it makes it sound like an orange but like mm. um, <laughs> or like a watermelon um, but I have a looper pedal um, and the cool thing about that is you know you hit it and you can you know play essentially play with your yourself um, musically and uh, but the the really funny thing is is that it repeats your mistakes too, <laughs> right? So it'll keep going, right? Oh yeah, unless you like yeah shut it down right away. But uh, it's it it's really interesting technology, and I've seen buskers um, work with that, and like they'll build they'll even do it a cappella. Like they'll they'll hit a beat or beatbox and then start rapping over it. Like it's it's very interesting. It's so good. Absolutely love it. Um, and there's the one song we've played it on the show here. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, it's Tado or Tadao or whatever. Um, and we, we played it actually as a, one of our sexy song nights that we did. It's Masego and FKJ. That song is, um, is all on loops too, which is really great. You can see it in the music video. So it's kind of cool stuff. All right. Uh, 877-399-9898. Your calls, your text messages. Welcome here on the show. Let's do a little bit of, are you okay? Shall we? Hey, let's do this. 
Are you okay with putting cameras in people's gardens to covertly film cats? Hmm. Yes, I am. Uh, I'm totally okay. The internet is 90% cat videos. <laughs> so um, I see no problem with this. My only concern with this, Matt, that I take your your point and I, I raise you, it says, are you okay with putting cameras in people's gardens? So I don't think it's your garden. It could be someone else putting a camera in your garden or the strangers. That's a little bit uh, creepy to me. So I'm going to say no. Right. That Yeah, when you put it that way, it is, so there's something kind of Orwellian about it and using the cats as kind of a way to soften the... Um, you know, police state paranoid kind of mindset. There you go. Chris, care to chime in? I think it softens it enough for me, you know, like um, cats. Cats, cats, cats. It's like, it's a cat. oh, come on, cats. It's like, do what you want because cats. So, yeah, I'm okay with it because cats. All right. In Vancouver, 34 cameras have been set up to try and count the city's cat population and how many rogue kitties are preying on unsuspecting birds. I have my SD card. We are good to go. 34 cameras and counting installed in commercial, industrial and residential areas, hoping to get a glimpse of the elusive household cat. And so far, so good. Two million photos already reveal Vancouver's feline population is living it up. Anytime something moves in front of the camera, it takes five shots. But this good life out on the town is bad news for those that dare to fly by. Would you believe in Canada, cats kill between 100 and 350 million birds every year? It's everywhere that we have brought in these urban little mini lions, right? These little these little <laughs> furry critters that we call cats and that we, we love. That's why Jalen Bastos and his team are conducting the Vancouver Cat Count. Not only to figure out how many live in the city, domestic and feral, but where they are, the hotspots, and where birds are most vulnerable. They're the main focus of this study. Yeah, they are, they're, they're just, they're, the numbers are just so alarming. Cameras will be moved every three weeks, data will be crunched, then the results and know-how will be shared with other cities across the country. Seven weeks in, Bastos figures 50 to 100,000 cats wander Vancouver's neighborhoods. And the research has already turned up knowledge about other creatures, some that might be harmful to cats. A greater risk of predation by our urban predators, like our coyotes. They're at greater risk of disease transfer, of parasites. The park board and city will also review the research. There are many bylaws for dogs. One day, there may be more rules for cats, too. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> Oh, kitties. But see, it, what inspires that, really? Is well, it somebody I going, think, you know what? I feel like there's less birds around. Yeah, well, no, yeah, actually, there, are, there might be less birds around. That might actually be it. Um, is that I think at the root of counting cats foremost is usually, um, well, you want to know what disease-ridden little, you know, monsters are running around your city and what they're getting up to and what other predators or animals they're you know running across and, and interacting with and the other thing is you want to know what they're killing um mm. especially in an area like bc which has a lot of 
you know, wildlife and a lot of like really beautiful and glorious wildlife, you know, a lot of um, beautiful birds and such. A lot, a lot like of really good crows, really beautiful crows. Oh, dear. So, it um, sounds like you, you don't think cats are beautiful. You're insulting all the cat lovers. For um, a guy who's I, uh, got I, an imaginary cat named Potato Chip Gilbert, I find that, I find that tough. I love all animals. Right. Apart from geese. Geese, geese suck. Yeah, In case but, you, geese are me. We've all agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, Potato Chip Gilbert um, might be disappointed to hear that you're sticking up for the birds, buddy. Just saying. Potato Chip Gilbert doesn't need to worry about it because Potato Chip Gilbert's not a real cat. Yet. He has a song. How's he not He's a real cat? He's just a song. A song doesn't have feelings. Uh, <laughs> I'll let Matt take that one. <laughs> Uh, he's not a real cat yet. One day he's going to be a real cat, and then what are you going to what are you going to do now? What are you going to do, Chris? I, I will count him like these guys are. I'll be like one, one cat, and these guys are counting many more cats. But that's okay; they're counting higher. I'm counting okay. one cat, and they're counting more than one cat. My well, saving the. Saving the birds. We're just going to move on here real quick just for time, guys. Uh, saving the birds is a big deal. And Chris can speak to this because down in New Zealand, mm -hmm. uh, there was a guy named Gareth Morgan. He's the Opportunities yep. Party Leader. He wanted a cat call to save the birds. And then two years later, uh, there was, uh, he was still trying to, trying to get that done. So um, let's get the clip. Cat crusader Gareth Morgan has been collecting video footage to support his view that cat numbers need to be reduced. The economist has had video cameras placed in people's gardens to show how wide-ranging their nighttime meandering can be. Emma Brannan reports. He's the country's controversial cat crusader. In 2013... My request of every cat owner in New Zealand is to make this cat your last. And today on TV3's The Nation... Three strikes and you're out, or there's a fine, or whatever. Gareth Morgan wants all cats microchipped and registered. They're defecating, so that's the first thing. So that's the toxoplasmosis issue. But the thing I'm far more concerned about is obviously the wildlife. The economist come environmentalist has been filming cats again, last time in the capital, now in Auckland. Cameras were moved around 20 Auckland properties over 388 days and nights revealing cats prowling in someone else's garden 694 times, or about twice a day. Morgan says that's more than 300 million cat invasions every year in Auckland alone, mainly by domestic cats. Wandering cats should be caged. In the case of an unknowing cat, they should be destroyed, just like a dog would be. The SPCA says some of Morgan's suggestions are sensible. Things like responsible ownership, things like microchipping, things like desexing, that we all agree with. There's, that, there's, there's some areas, if you like, at the harder end that we probably don't agree. The culling aspect of cats is something that clearly doesn't sit well with us. Morgan has been a cat owner. When you have kids, you know, you have cats and then the kids go and you think, oh, I've got this bloody cat boy. Morgan's cat did live a long life. Under his plans, responsible cat owners would make sure theirs did too. This I can't guy, believe you just said desexing. This guy in 2013 formed a new party called the Opportunities Party. And that year during an election campaign, his main policy was killing cats. Wow. There was the first policy out of the gate was like we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna kill little little mittens down there. We want him gone. 
<laughs> mittens. Man, oh man, you're lit up about the cats. My goodness. Uh, hey, Shane, anyone who kills cats should be put in jail. I have a seven and a half year old cat. It made me angry when I heard what the guy was saying. What a douchebag. Now, that's from a guy that's <laughs> named John. And the only other guy that John calls a douchebag is Trump. So that's how upset he is about that. Just so you know. Um, then cats will rule. Uh, rats will rule without cats. Uh, that would definitely be true in BC, I'm sure. Cats kill many more mice and rats. Relax. Small birds will survive. Well, technically, no, they won't. They'll be lunch. But I'm sure they'll be okay in the big picture of all things in the world. You know, that's what happens. Uh, Brian says, my astroplaning cat told me in my dreams that if they had the opportunity to spread COVID-19, that they would. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much uh, for that, Brian. All right, Matt. Yes. You had a, uh, did you have a cat story that you want to share? Yeah. And this is an, ex this is, so my sister had a cat named Lucifer hmm. and um, uh, one day uh, my sister walked into her room and found that uh, Lucifer, Lucifer had um, killed a bunch of small birds and ceremonially put ceremonially put them in a circle. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> to present to essentially present them to my sister to be like, "Hey mom, here's what I did." For what I did for you. For you. And that just proves that cats know exactly what they're doing. I'm a I'm a dog person, so all you cat people out there, I appreciate your passion. I think it's misguided because I always believe a dog will lie next to you if something ever happens or go get help and a cat will eat your eyeballs. That's all I'm saying. I had a cat his name was Speck. He was amazing. He got hit by a bus. Then he only had three legs. He survived because the dog uh, took my dad to him in the ditch and saved him. So he was an amazing cat. Um, there is no other better cat. He liked popcorn and chocolate. So I, I've already had the world's perfect cat. I'm sorry that yours is not perfect. Just saying. Don't be offended there, Potato Chip Gilbert. Cats are jerks. <laughs> I, I respect their jerkiness. Like, they are, though. I mean, I love cats. I love all animals, especially cats, you know. But, like, and I know that might offend a lot of people. Like, oh, my little schnookums or whatever. Like, I'm, okay, that's your cat. You know, that that's, like, saying that, like, you know, all kids are dumb. You know, I'm sure you love your kid. But it's true. Like, kids are dumb. And all cats are jerks. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, I wish I could argue that, Chris, but I actually said those words earlier today. So, <laughs> as I just, I heard myself in what you just said. I'm like, oh no, what have I done? Yeah. All right. One more, no, one more texture yeah. says, my neighbor uh, had a great cat named Simon, the nicest cat you could ever meet. Simon is a great name for a cat. Simon would chase the squirrels all day. One day, Simon came home with a large bite mark on her neck. She didn't chase the squirrels ever again. Oh, poor Simon. Squirrels are badass. See, but cats, I mean, the one thing about a cat is a cat will always, you know, stick to their guns, right? Like, you can't talk them into anything. They're not going to roll over for you. You know, they are adamant. And I do give them credit for that, even though they'll eat your eyeballs. Just saying. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. I had no idea Ice Cube had a song that was called Sasquatch. Dave Scott, Spaced Out Radio. Are you there, my friend? I am here, my friend. How are you? I am uh, absolutely quite wonderful today. It is our Good News Tuesday-ish that we bring you on the program. So might as well start with a little bit of good news, Dave Scott. You must have something that you can share. 
I do have good news because for all those outdoors people out there who decide, you know, to get in that final few hikes of the year and those final few times where they're going to go camping out in the forest, maybe do a little fishing at a private lake or something along those lines. The good news is your chance of seeing Bigfoot or Sasquatch is actually going to increase. Why is that? Because talking to the people that I have been talking to recently, we are now in the migration time of year where Sasquatch looks to prepare for the winter and they start looking for food, foraging for the final berries of the year, and you never know what's going to come around that next tree and that next rock and that next corner while out in the wilderness. All right, Dave Scott, I have a question for you that came in from a listener, and I think it's just an honest question, and I think it's worth asking. Bigfoot? Sure. Hit me Sasquatch? Up. Yeti? All the same dudes? Yes, different species, though. Okay. So, like, uh, all dogs, okay. one's a Great Dane, one's a uh, Golden Retriever. Exactly. All exactly. Right. All dogs, yeah. You know, Yeti is more in in the Asian area from Russia through China, Tibet, in, into that area around uh, Mount Everest. The Sasquatch is the Canadian term, which was brought forward about a hundred and some years ago by the Chehalis Indian Band out by Harrison Lake. And they are the ones who are noted for that name. So if anybody tells you differently, they're lying you know, that's where the word Sasquatch came from. Bigfoot is more the American version of this. But, you know, even in North America, we actually do have different types of creatures. So the creatures in the Pacific Northwest tend to be bigger, anywhere from 7 feet to 10, 11 feet tall. Whereas if you go down into the bayous of Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, Florida, in that swampy area, they say the creature is anywhere between four and a half to seven feet tall, except it is much more aggressive, much more angry, and much more really wants to hurt you. But then again, look at the environment it's in, where you're having to deal with alligators, crocodiles, vipers, and rattlesnakes, and I'd be pretty upset too. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I was going to get all political on you there, but I, I decided not to because that's that it wasn't funny. But so here's the thing. You, when we got into this, you said migration. To me, I heard that as yes. kind of like a bear getting ready for hibernation. Is it similar that you're talking about or you're just talking about the food changes? Well, the idea behind it is this, okay, is that the food sources right now. So if you think of the wild animals, what do they feed a lot on? They feed a lot on on sheep and goats and deer and moose and elk and rabbits. Well, during the summertime, those animals move up more into the tops of the mountains around British Columbia and around North America and the world. So now that it's starting to get colder temperatures where very soon the tips of the mountains are going to start seeing snow, these animals start coming down towards the valleys. And so what happens and what is believed with the Sasquatch is this is also combined with the fact that fish like, especially here on the West Coast, where the salmon are starting to migrate in towards the rivers and streams and lakes in order to spawn. Same thing on the East Coast in the rivers, streams 
and lakes as well. So there's going to be a multitude of food options, a plethora of of animals coming off the mountains. You have literally millions of fish that are getting ready to spawn. I mean, we all seen the videos from Alaska down through British Columbia where the bears sit in the raging rivers and catch the salmon as they're jumping through the rapids. That's what we, we expect to see. Now, a lot of the Sasquatch sightings around the, uh, the eastern lower mainland of British Columbia actually happened during the hunting and fishing season in the wilderness because, you know, there was one famous story, oh, I'm going to go back about 20 years on the Chehalis River where there's this canyon that has a very famous coho run. And a couple of fishermen were fishing in this, this canyon pool when all of a sudden rocks started splashing. And not just tiny rocks, okay, we're talking boulders about 100 to 200 pounds being thrown off the cliff, which is about 100 feet above, right into this pool literally almost hitting a couple of these fishermen and scared everybody away. Now, this could this be folklore? Could this just be a fisherman's tale? Very well could be. However, that site still gets maintained by fishermen, and people there still claim that every now and again, something weird happens. So when we talk about all of these places, and I'm asking this question, frankly, because I just don't know. Because when I did some research on um, Bigfoot and Sasquatch and all that today, I saw some um, yeah. some pictures of bones. And they were, they were sort of equating the size, the believed size of Bigfoot and the Sasquatch um, and to different history of primates and trying to make connections between maybe the history of the, the biology of the beast. So... If all of these things are, are happening and they're all out there like this, why are we doing not see the bones the same way? Like I, I would imagine, you know, for example, Mount St. Helens, stuff like that. You know, would there not be uh, any beasts that, you know, were didn't survive or make it with the ash in the air back in the 80s? And then maybe they would find some bones lying around. Well, that's an interesting story as it is, because even though there is zero proof, Okay, there is eyewitness testimony and legend around Mount St. Helens on May 18th, 1980, that actually there were Chinook helicopters from Fort Lewis that were flying on in and allegedly carrying the Sasquatch bodies out. Yes. Do I believe it? I don't know. Is it plausible? Could be. But there are these stories that they were out collecting so that people wouldn't find them. Why? The easy answer to that is, well, maybe the government wants to try and make them into some supernatural type weapon like they do with everything. Because, you know, I mean, Terminator is almost ready and Terminator 2 is now pretty much a, you know, a prophecy the way we're going with everything. But um, otherwise, a lot of people also believe that this creature is very supernatural, almost having the ability to cross through portals or extra dimensions. A lot of First Nations across North America believe there is something very special about this, and that's the reason why we haven't found a body of this creature. Now, there are those who believe we have and that they are stored in the Smithsonian. There's a number of excuses why we haven't found the body or why it's there. But what we do know is that there are footprints and tracks and, and all sorts of 
investigative phenomena and and uh, evidence that is popping up where you wouldn't see people around. And, you, you know, one of the best, if, if you're interested in this story, Okay, and you know people who are in the logging community, many people who are are foresters or do a lot of work in the forest, they will see some very, very strange things, things they cannot understand. I was talking to one young man here just a couple of days ago. He used to be a logger. He's now a car mechanic. And he was telling me that when he was working out in the deep woods of British Columbia doing logging, he was running a skitter. And all of a sudden, it's about five in the morning. The sun is rising in the east. He's staring off into that direction, and he's watching these small trees be pushed over one by one on the horizon. He said about seven trees fell, and he goes, I know for a fact there was no human there. I know for a fact there was nobody in that area but us logging. So there was no reason to bring those trees down because they were immature in the first place. And then he said that there was no earthquakes. Nothing would have made that happen. He went and told his boss, his boss says, don't worry about it. Just do your job and what you are supposed to do. Huh. And that's what a lot of logging crews are told. So that's an interesting perspective, Dave, because I've never thought of it that way before. I mean, we've talked about black holes. We talked about black holes, making black hole babies. And then now there's bigger black holes and space time stuff and all of that. And, I, I write in my writing about time quite a bit. I, one of my things about language and understanding life is once you understand time um, and the way that we look at time, that we understand a lot more about life, about ourselves. And so you, you got me there for a second because you said things like portals. Okay. Now, I have no evidence that any sort of portal would exist, but uh, in the spirit of, in the spirit of thinking about things differently, because that's where you have to think about things. I've always thought, okay, there's a beast. It's like a bear, but it's, you know, Harry and the Hendersons walking around through the woods. And it's just a beast that we haven't found yet. And the way that I've said to myself, well, do I know anything about it? Not really, but they still find things in the sea all the time. Who's to say they wouldn't find something walking through the woods. But when you take the perspective of, you know, sort of portals, timelines, supernatural conversation. Well, the whole perspective changes if you just take it out of simple biology, doesn't it? Well, sure. But there are a bunch of scientists who are looking at this. Okay. I think of uh, Dr. Jeff Meldrum from the University of uh, Montana or Idaho, one of those two, I always get them confused, where he actually believes that he has been able to follow patterns, including young Sasquatch that are now older Sasquatch, and he's been able to do that by casting footprints and seeing the dermal ridges and the, the lines, you know, like much like your hands, you have a bunch of, of lines in your hand. Well, feet have the same, the same patterns that cannot be replicated. And he has been able to watch them actually grow. He believes it's a family type of hominid species. All right. The late Dr. John Bindernagel, who passed away just a couple of years ago, spent over 70 years researching this creature, became a, a biologist all because of the Sasquatch. He spent years trying to get the scientific community on board. David Politis, who runs the very famous Missing 411 uh, series. So if you if you go to canammissing.org, 
you'll be able to check out his website. He has worked long and hard on trying to think and figure out that a lot of these people who go missing in the forest are actually taken by Sasquatch, potentially, or aliens, one of the two. All right. But there is a lot of these stories that are going on by some very reputable people with high degrees, high education, and they are trying to figure out what is going on. The reason why the majority of the scientific community has not jumped on board with this, well, that's maybe because of ignorance, maybe the chance of losing grants, which has happened before. All right. The scientific community, the one thing that I have learned through this entire process, whether it's UFOs, ghosts, aliens, is that it is very political. And there are not a lot of scientific people who want to put their own reputations on the line to look for, you know, things that aren't supposed to exist rather than concentrating on things that do. Much like the one study in the U.S. a couple of years ago where a university was paid over $300,000 to test how a cougar would react by walking on a treadmill. Yeah. But we can't go look for Sasquatch because so that's why not would a Sasquatch take right. a person though? Is there any indication of how that is? Is this something we should be worried about? No, the theory behind that is, and, and I'm using this from a story from the Chehalis first nation around almost a hundred years ago now where a young lady was taken and she was then found a few months later up in a cave in one of the mountains. And the theory behind that in talking to many First Nations is that they believe there may not be as many female Sasquatch as there are male Sasquatch. So with that being said, they look to take women so that way they could potentially procreate. Wow. That does not bode well. Yes. Mm. No, you don't want that. You don't no. want that. So no, and, and that's why on a serious on a serious note, that's why a lot of First Nations, even up here, when I've talked to my friends at the Canham Lake Band, where I am here in the Kootenai, in the uh, Caribou region of British Columbia, all right, they have told me that they even tell their young ladies do not go out alone at night because you never know, you never know uh, if if uh, Sasquatch is going to take you. The uh, the bear spray would come in handy. At least you would hope. Oh, maybe. For the, maybe. Uh, for the but, big fella. But yes. You know what? The the key is just, just keep looking. You never know. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, for, for the people where you are near Vancouver, if you go over to the North Shore Mountains or over to Golden Ears or out into the Fraser Valley of Chilliwack or Hope or on the north side of the Fraser River, there is plenty of opportunity. You just have to know where to look. And it could be anywhere. You know, check a deer trail if you want to see something. Check a deer trail. You know, they're not going to be walking down the road looking for to pick up a hitchhiker, like a hitchhiker. They're not going to be like that. What you have to do is just put yourself in the situation, and you never know what you're going to be able to find. Now, that being said, go into the forest safe. Know what animals are around there. Carry bear spray, all right? You know, be smart about things because you you can get hurt in the wilderness very easily. You know, but the key is, doesn't matter where you are in North America, Canada especially, these creatures are out there. People are out there looking for them. There's enough evidence out there through footprints, foot castings, hand castings, other types of evidence that uh, people believe they found from fecal matter all the way to hair samples. And all you have to do is look around and see where they're being found. And you never know. You go out in the wilderness, you may just get lucky. 
Dave Scott, spacedoutradio.com for his show. Thanks for including us in it. Uh, love the conversation as always, Dave. I look forward to chatting again next week. All right, my friend. We will chat with you next week. Follow us on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio as well. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio.